Amen. Please be seated. Wow. Thank you, worship team. I'm already sort of just wrung out like a washcloth, but I'm going to invite you to continue to worship together as a church family. My name's Eric, and I get to pastor down here, and uh, I want to take you back in time just a little bit. The year was 1960. The Beatles were in Hamburg, Germany. It was after World War II. And the people of Germany, some 15 years after the Great Second War, were beginning to finally ask hard questions. What's really the deal with the Holocaust? What happened in our country? What happened in this supposedly Christian nation in which we exterminated millions of people? Who's really responsible? And there was all sorts of strife and outbreakings of violence and turmoil. And so a Lutheran pastor named Gunther Rutenborn wrote a little sermon that ultimately became a play. And it was called The Sign of Jonah. And in the play, he sort of summarized and he allegorized what was going on in Germany. And he sort of summarized that as people were beginning to be confronted with the horrors and the enormity of the atrocities of the Holocaust, people were being asked, are you responsible for what happened in Germany? And they would say, oh, no, goodness, no, 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 not me. That was somebody in office. They knew what was going on, and they didn't stop it, but I wasn't responsible. And so the alleged supposed interviewer would go to those people who were in office at the local level, at sort of the county or parish level, and say, were you responsible for what was going on in the Holocaust? Were you responsible for those atrocities? Oh, goodness, no, it wasn't me. No, no, it couldn't have been me. It was the soldiers. The soldiers knew what was going on, and they could have stopped it, but they didn't. And so the interviewer goes, and he speaks to the soldiers. Did you know what was going on? I sort of knew the soldiers would say, but what am I supposed to do? I follow orders. It was my superiors. It was my commanding officers. It was those people that were in charge. They are the ones who knew. They are the ones who were the responsible ones. And so the interviewer goes to the officers and says, you knew what was happening. Did you understand what was going on? Well, yes, sort of, but it wasn't my responsibility. I can't be held responsible. I knew, but I didn't have any power. It's those who were above me. And you see how this goes. It just goes on and on until finally the commanders of the Third Reich were interviewed who were still alive. And were you responsible? Actually, no. It's just the, the sequencing of events. I can't be responsible. And so what Rutenborn talks about is how all the people from the lowest to the greatest, they come together and they decide that really and truly, ultimately and only, the responsible party has to be God. Because God knew that this was going to happen. God knew that this did happen, and he had the power to stop it, and he didn't. And so the people come together, and they demand justice. They demand that God, the responsible party, he become human, and he face the consequences for what has happened in Germany. And so they put God on trial, and God is convicted which is the story, of course, of the gospel. And until that clicks for you, that that is precisely who we are and what we have done, then you will not be fully prepared to worship. But that is our big idea this morning. Chris has already led us in communion appropriately. That is our big idea, and it goes like this. Prepare to worship. Allow the horrors and the atrocities of your sin and mine and ours to be poured out on the substitute who is innocent of all. Prepare to worship. 
We are in the gospel of Mark as we have been this entire spring semester. We've made it all the way through and to now chapter 14. And as we've been saying all semester long, I want to remind you of our series theme, that the more we examine the object of our faith, the more we look at Jesus, the more our faith grows. Not the more that we try harder to believe deeper. No, no, no. The more we examine Jesus, the more our faith goes. And so this entire gospel account of Mark has been shining a very bright, precise light on the life ministry of Jesus so that our faith is thickened, deepened, widened, broadened, strengthened. Now we've made it into chapter 14. And let me just go ahead and tell you, it should probably be about five chapters. It ain't. It's one, and we're going to wrap our arms around all of it today. It's 72 verses. It's going to be at breakneck pace because Mark is sitting in Rome writing to a Roman readership, and he wants them to enjoy and experience all of this all at once. I'm not going to keep you until the Masters is over, fellas. Relax. But I want you to see this. I want you to see this preparation as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God is prepared to be the substitute, the one that stands in our place. We've already made it through the triumphal entry a couple weeks ago in Mark chapter 11. In chapter 12, Jesus is confronted by these various influence groups who are trying to convince him of what greatness really is. And then in chapter 13, we have the Olivet Discourse in which Jesus talks about the gathering storm clouds of darkness and judgment and how it will be poured out by the wrath of God on sin itself. And then what you find to your horror is in chapter 14, those same storm clouds will gather and they will be poured out on Jesus himself. So I invite you to prepare to worship. Mark chapter 14, we'll start in verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover. There's a problem here. What does this mean? Is this Wednesday? Is this Thursday? There's some issue with the dates. They get kind of wonky. The Jewish people, as you well know, start their day at sunset. The Roman calendar, to whom Mark is writing and where Mark is writing from, starts their day as we do at midnight. So is this Wednesday or Thursday? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Probably Wednesday, maybe Thursday. It affects no doctrine. Don't lose any sleep over it. Two days before the Passover, what they would do is they would have Passover And everybody is commanded to have Passover within the city walls of Jerusalem. So it's absolutely swollen with population. Maybe two million people are gathered up. Immediately after Passover comes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there's an eight-day festal season in which all the people will gather in this one very tight urban context. Two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and chastise him, no, to kill him, to put him on trial, and to destroy him. So we've said this this entire spring semester, the gospel of Mark is full of all these little Mark sandwiches. We got about three different Mark sandwiches this morning. This starts the first one. We're going to see this treachery, this conspiracy, this deceit and trickery to try to trap Jesus. They'd said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They have clawed and scratched, trying to achieve greatness. And by their scorecard, by their reckoning, they have achieved it. And so they will fight fiercely to protect it. But they can't do it during the feast. It's got to be beforehand, or it's got to be afterward, or the people might riot, and then Rome's going to get involved, and then Rome will come in and ruin everything and take their perceived greatness. So they've got to be clever and crafty and creative. 
Well, that's the treachery that starts us off in verses 1 and 2. Now to verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, so Bethany's this little village. It's, if you leave Temple Mount and you go down to the east, you cross through the Kidron Valley, you go up over the Mount of Olives, through the Garden of Gethsemane, and you go up into this little uh, bedroom community, we might say, of Bethany. It's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And so Jesus is getting some much-needed rest. While he was at Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. <laughs> That's funny. You don't go to lepers' houses. They're unclean. But apparently, this has been a leper. And you're supposed to see the juxtaposition. You're supposed to see the comparison. There are scribes and chief priests who are trying to kill Jesus to preserve their way of life. And then there's a leper named Simon who was spiritually and socially and almost physically dead that apparently Jesus has given life. Now, we don't know anything else about this when this occurs. My sense is that this is the leper that Jesus heals and makes clean way back in chapter one up in the galley. He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and show yourselves to the priests. And they all go, we have no category for this. We don't know how to, we don't know how to deal with leprosy because no one's ever been cleansed. And so they have to go to the old dusty books of Leviticus 14 through 18. And they go, there's not even a bookmark in here. It's never been used. I think maybe this is him. I don't know that. But they're in the home. So you got the scribes, the legislators, and the chief priests trying to kill him. You got this guy who's been given a newness of life, and he's hosting Jesus and his compatriots for a banquet. They're at the home of Simon the leper. By the way, that's not like his business card title. Hey, I'm Simon the leper. What do you do? Uh, no, that's what he used to be. But see, Jesus has made him whole, and so they're in his house. As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, pure spike nard, undiluted. This is a... Uh, a incredibly opulent, valuable gift that would come from India. It'd been traded from India, remarkably expensive. We don't get a whole lot of detail here from Mark. Now, not to be confused, there's anointing that takes place in Luke's gospel in chapter 7. That's up in the Galilee. That's a different one entirely. But this one is almost certainly the same anointing that we read about in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, we realize that this woman is actually Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And what happens in John chapter 12 happens immediately after John chapter 11 in which Lazarus is raised from the dead in Bethany. So Mark is doing a thematic theological emphasis whereas John's doing more of a chronological one. So you gotta marry those two things together. And so here we are again. She comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Oh, yes, indeed. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. She didn't just take the top off. She didn't just crack the seal. She makes the flask thereafter unusable. She pours out the whole of its contents, and she pours it on his head. She anoints him. Now remember, Jesus is the Christ, Mashiach. It is that term that means the anointed one. Jesus is the only figure in your Bible that is anointed as all three offices, as prophet, as priest, and as king. So this woman... <laughs> of everybody else seems to understand who he is and what he must do. And so she gives, she gives an outward symbol of the inward reality. It's what we do in our two ordinances with communion and baptism. We do an outward symbol of an inward reality. And she pours this pricey ointment on his head. This woman 
interrupts the proceedings of a banquet that would have been hosted by males, and nobody seems to stop her, including Jesus. Now, if what she would have been doing was inappropriate or incorrect, he would have stopped her necessarily and rebuked her as blasphemous. But he patiently receives it. You gotta be in the room, man. You can't just hear a story like this. Remember, this is Mark, who 42 times will say things like, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. It's the action movie. But when he slows down the narrative, you've got to pay attention. The music has swollen and then stopped. And I want you to see the eye contact between Jesus and this woman. I don't think he ever breaks off his gaze. And she pours this whole thing. The whole house, I mean, break a case of cologne in a room half the size of this one. It would have been completely captivating. And Jesus receives it. Of course, there were some who said to themselves, indignantly, the same word we have in, John, in Mark chapter 10, when James and John try to tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, when you get promoted, when you get elected, make us your top two cabinet members. And the other 10 hear about it, and they were scheming the same things, and so they were indignant. It's the same word here. They see this woman waste it. She just wastes it. And they were indignant. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Ugh. Sidebar. Never a good idea to try to Jesus juke Jesus. It's never going to work. They suddenly feign like they're concerned for the poor, these disciples. Oh, you remember the disciples, the ones who in Mark 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, couldn't care less about the hungry people. And then they go over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis where the Gentiles are, and those people have been with Jesus for three days and they're starving, and the disciples could not care less. They're more wanting to call down some fire and brimstone if given the opportunity. But now they seem to care about the poor, and it's 300 denarii. This is 300 days wages. So I don't know. You want to try to put that in today's terms? What does that mean? $50,000? Adjust for inflation? $100,000? We get the impression that Mary is not married. This is her only and last shot. It's her dowry. It's her wealth. It's probably her heritage that was passed to her. This is her dowry. If she's ever going to have a husband and have any chance at long-lasting life, this is it. And she wastes it on Jesus. Oh, man. Verse 6, but Jesus said, are you in the room? Are you in the room? He never breaks off his gaze with her, I'm convinced. Text doesn't tell us this. I think he just keeps looking at her as this rich, thick, fragrant ointment comes down his hair. I think he maintains eye contact and he says, leave her alone. Can you imagine how she must have felt that her worship was acknowledged, received, affirmed? Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. What you declared a waste, Jesus has declared beautiful. I don't know what you think is happening this morning as you came to worship. I don't know what you think about your singing voice. I know what I think about mine. It resembles a barnyard scene. (laughs) 
But Jesus declares it beautiful. Now that's amazing. For you always have the poor with you. He's not discounting the poor. Please make no mistake. And whenever you want, you can do for them. But you will not always have me. The time is short, and she is the only one that recognizes it. She's the only one that gets it. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I think Mary watches Jesus weep for her dead brother and with a word call Lazarus out of the tomb, and then the penny drops. She says, my God, my God. You're going to forsake him. And the rest of her life is spent in preparation to prepare him for what he must do. She's done a beautiful thing, Jesus says. And truly I say to you, wherever the the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Oh, my, my, my. Please keep that in mind. That's going to be a very important bookend or the second slice of the bread and the Mark sandwich when we get to the very end. But I also want to remind you, because I'm sure you've slept since then, or at least I pray you have slept since then, at the very end of the gospel of Mark chapter 12, we have all these different influence groups that are coming trying to trap and tease and trick Jesus. And the very end of chapter 12, we have Jesus takes the disciples and he plops them down in front of the treasury and we are encountered by a widow who has two bronze coins. Let me help. A bronze coin is worth one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. So she drops in one thirty-second of a day's wage. And Jesus goes, her, her. She's all in. She's a worshiper. (laughs) And then you put that right next to this woman, Mary. Maybe it was 60,000, maybe it was 100,000. I don't think Jesus cares about the decimals and the commas. Her, that's it. There's one little mark and sandwich between this and that. This is what it looks like to be an authentic, all-in worshiper, all the way pouring it in. And Mary, this woman, apparently she is the only one that gets it. Apparently the only one that understood that Messiah must die. And please allow me a little bit of latitude here. If this is Wednesday or Thursday, probably very late on Thursday, maybe Wednesday, it doesn't matter. As Jesus goes to the cross, she's the only one that has contributed anything to his crucifixion other than sin. I know she was a sinner. I know she was a sinner. But as Jesus is nailed to the cross just 48 hours after, And as they pressed the crown of thorns into his scalp, you could have still smelled it. The glory of her worship as he cries it out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can still smell the faint trace echoes of her worship. If you try to tell me that your worship doesn't matter, I'll probably choke you out (laughs) because I love you. Well, then Judas Iscariot, he finally snaps. What a waste. What a waste. 
So much power, so much opportunity. What Jesus could have accomplished for my agenda. He can't take it anymore. And so he snaps. He was one of the 12. He went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. Wait a second. Jerusalem is packed with 2 million people and the streets are very narrow and they're crammed and there are turns everywhere. We're never going to find him like this. We need, we need something. And so they're fraudulent prayers and hopes that Jesus would be delivered to them are answered with this guy. They would never have dared to approach one of his disciples, but this one comes to them and they're glad and they promise to pay him. We find out later 30 pieces of silver, but somewhere between five and $6,000 today in our economy. He promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so here you have the first mini Markin sandwich. You have the treachery of the chief priests and the scribes. You have the treachery of Judas. And right in the middle, you have worship. There's an old song. Were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the answer is yes. Were you in the middle of the sandwich or were you the bread? And the answer is yes. Let's pick up speed. And on the first day of unleavened bread, probably Thursday now, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They just assume that they are now a family and that Jesus is playing the role of parental member. And he sent two of his disciples, we find out in the Gospel of John, it was Peter and John, he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow the water boy. <laughs> this is very similar to Mark chapter 11 where Jesus sends them in to find a colt that's never been ridden, Zechariah 9. Go in, you're gonna find a dude carrying some water. That's a tip off. This is, uh, this is spy craft. Men didn't carry jars of water. The women did that. The men carried the wineskins. So this is a very obvious signal to only the people that are looking for it. And so... He sent two of them in. You're going to follow this guy, uh, follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. We think this is probably the house of Mark or Mark's parents. Large enough for Jesus and his disciples and more than likely a bunch of other people as well. We'll see here in just a moment. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it strangely, coincidentally, just as Jesus had told them. Because Jesus is on a tight schedule and he's prepared everything. So we assume Jesus has made arrangements beforehand, probably with Mark's parents. Hey, this is how this is going to go down. I need to use your room. And they said, we got you. We have it for you. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, this is not merely a prediction, although it is. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 41, where David had been dining with Ahithophel, one of his generals, who would then turn around and immediately betray him. This is Jesus' subtle way of saying, I am the rightly line of David, betrayed by those who dine with me. Did they get it? No. But we have the opportunity to get it. They begin to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12. Ah, so there were other people there. It's not any of you guys out there. It's one of my 12. And that was an ice pick to the soul. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So they would eat the bread of affliction from Exodus. 
to remind them of how they had to leave in a hurry so they didn't have time to put yeast in their bread. They would take bitter herbs and they would dip that in the bowl to remind them of the bitter tears that they cried as they had to leave and flee in a hurry. And for those that had died, they would eat this little stewed fruit mesh to remind them of the bricks they had to make and toil. And Jesus is about to tell them, what you're doing is participating in all of the symbology that points to me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written in Isaiah, in Zechariah, in Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The Son of Man must die. This is God's plan. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Here's probably one of the most concise verses in your entire Bible of the sovereignty of God, God's plan before the foundations of the earth. Revelation 13, before the foundations of the earth, the Christ was crucified in the mind of God. And side by side with no resolution of the tension, the culpability and responsibility of man. It was God's plan. And Judas is 100% responsible for his actions. It's an amazing thing. It's a tension. Embrace it. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, oh, there's so much going on here. This last Passover. The one who would touch the bread was the father. This is a declaration and a demonstration that Jesus is hosting this meal because he is the father. He's not father God, but he is the one who is in charge. This is his final Passover. He breaks the bread and he gives the father's customary prayer, the prayer of thanksgiving. He broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body, the last Passover and the first Eucharist or Lord's Supper. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. But there was four cups in the Passover dinner. Jesus drinks the third cup, the cup of thanksgiving. But he'll say in a moment, I will not drink the fourth cup, the cup of consummation until the Son of Man returns. There is a gap between the third and the fourth cups. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now just to be very pedantic, no, Jesus does not mean that this is literally his flesh and his blood. Any more than when you hold up your phone and you say, oh my gosh, look at me, what was going on with my hair? Everybody, including you, knows you don't actually mean that that's you and your actual hair. It's a symbolic imaged representation of you. It's what Jesus is doing because the iPhone hadn't come out yet. And so when entire denominations try to say that that's a magical hocus pocus that turns that bread and that wine into actual flesh and blood... That's a medieval additive that was not ever a part of the early church. So be not dissuaded or be not distracted by that. No offense, but offense, nonsense. Verse 25, sorry, verse 24. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is Exodus language. This is Moses standing in front of the temple doing all the sacrifices as the priest, as was Aaron, but Moses was the one who would stand in between and Moses would dip the hyssop in the blood. And he, this was a weird service. I grant you, we have never done this, but we might. He would dip it in the blood and he would spray it on the people. And he'd say, this is the blood of the covenant. There has been a substitute that was innocent that died in your place. Here, you've got to get it on you. And so Jesus, he stands up and he uses Moses' words. This is the blood of the covenant. But it's just a symbol because it's going to come from here. I'm inaugurating it. I'm instigating it. I'm initiating it. Here we go. Truly I say to you, verse 25, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they're praising God. 
They're singing the songs of Hallel. This is where we get our word for hallelujah, praise Yahweh. At Passover, they would go out and they would sing Psalm 115, 116, 117, and Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was the psalm that they were shouting antiphonally to one another as Jesus comes in in the triumphal entry. Do you know what I mean when I say antiphonally? There's this group of people over here and they're saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. And the people over here would shout back to them, Hosanna in the highest. And they would shout it at one another. It's Psalm 118. It's what Jesus quotes to the Pharisees when they're trying to trap him. He says, you don't understand. I have come, but you're trying to reject God's capstone. And so they would go out into the night singing Psalm 118 while they're praising God. Watch what Jesus does. It's hard to hear, but this starts a mark and sandwich. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is where Jesus very clearly says, this is God's doing. And where Mark has been trying to say for 14 chapters that Jesus is the suffering servant, here's our smoking gun. Jesus thinks of himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And the shepherd will be stricken and the sheep will scatter and splatter. I will strike the shepherd, God speaking of Messiah, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You guys, you guys, I'm coming back and I'll meet up with you up north. It's going to be great. They don't ever catch that part. They don't ever understand that part. Peter said, don't, no, don't do it, don't, don't, please don't do it, Peter. Every time I read this, I'm like, no, surely, surely there'll have been a revision. A better manuscript has been found. No, no, but Peter said to him, even though they, who's the they? The other 11, this guy, this Peter, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus has just said, I'm going to die. And I'm going to die for you because I love you. Not because you're awesome, but precisely because you're not. Enter Peter. Not me. You been there? Jesus, I just need a boost. I just need a nudge. I just need you to do the hard things while I do the important things. Just come on, man. Just give me a lift. No. Peter still doesn't know that he's the Holocaust. Oh, but he will. It'll come down on him like a ton of bricks. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I won't. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. This is how big sin is. You're told what it is. You're told when you'll do it, why you'll do it, that you're the kind of person that wants to do it and that you shouldn't do it. And you'll do it anyway. All the while thinking you're the kind of person that won't. Sin's a bigger deal than we think it is. Verse 31, but Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. You've been there? You've tried to impress Jesus with your awesomeness? He's not, but he loves you. And he will meet you in Galilee. It's very good news. 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. We sang about this earlier, the oil press, the olive press. And when he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. This is what we call the beginning of the dereliction. 
where Jesus begins to feel the full weight of that cup of God's wrath poured out on him. All the imagery of Mark 13 in the Olivet Discourse is now going to be singularized on an individual soul. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This is the first time in any of the Gospels we see that Jesus has a negative reaction. Now, he wept over Lazarus, but this is where he begins to really feel very, very troubled and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even the death. Remain here to watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. He prays for an hour, hands and knees, just retching, understanding the enormity of what's about to happen to him. And he said, Abba, Father, no Jew would ever call him this. The nation of Israel would not speak his name like this, but Jesus, Dad, Dad, it's all coming down to this. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And the reply comes back, You remember it as baptism? This is my son. I'm so pleased. Listen to him. Obey him. Follow him. Mark 9, the transfiguration. This is my son. He's me, but a different person, but he's God, and I love him. Follow him. Listen to him. Obey him. Now he's praying. Dad, Father, please. Silence. No answer. Verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? No, because the darkness is exploding and it's too heavy. Jesus can barely bear it. The darkness is exploding. And so these guys, these men, they just can't even stay awake. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed saying the same words, probably for another hour, hands and knees sweating as though drops of blood. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy because darkness is exploding in the world. And they did not know what to answer him. You've been there? I have. Jesus confronts me and I go, I got nothing. I got nothing. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough, it's done. The hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now we're gonna have the second piece of this midterm Mark and Sandwich. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Judas comes armed because he's still thinking of the wrong Messiah. Or he's thinking that I'll finally force Jesus' hand. He's never understood who this Jesus is. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Because, you know, it's dark. Seize him and lead him away under guard so that the people aren't aware and so that they don't revolt. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus, still smelling of nard, receives the sign that he knows what it's about. 
And he kissed him, verse 46, and when they laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from John 18, this was Peter, and that the servant of the high priest is named Malchus. We think in church history, Malchus becomes a believer. In Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus puts the ear back on. That's pretty cool. And so we say before, Peter is either the most amazing swordsman ever or the worst. But Peter is still operating by an inverse, upside-down, old kingdom, that it's all about the strength of your right hand. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom that I have brought, because I am the king, is upside-down, inside-out, and backwards, and it's not what you expected. Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber, an insurrectionist, with swords and clubs to capture me? What are you doing? I've been in temple courts day after day. You had your chance. I'm calling out your trickery, your deceit, your stealth, your craftiness. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Ah, this is all a part of God's plan. And they all left and fled. All the disciples scatter. Just like Jesus said a mere hours earlier. This is not like he said this months ago. This was hours earlier. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they, the pursuers of Jesus, the arresters of Jesus, they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Most scholars in church history tells us this was Mark. He'd been awakened in the home in which he lived, and he was told, Judas has betrayed our Lord. They're going to get him in the garden, and Mark probably doesn't even have time to dress. He just wraps up in his bedclothes, and he runs down the Kidron Valley into the garden, and he sees the torches. They've already got Jesus, and now he's stuck. And someone recognizes him, and they grab his cloak, and like the rest of us, runs away naked and ashamed with nothing else to offer. If you're making this stuff up, this stuff up, you would never include that. This is Mark's contribution to the life and ministry of Jesus. 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes all came together. This is in the southern part of the temple complex in what's called the, the chamber of hewn stone where the Sanhedrin would meet. There's 71 persons present. The high priest would sit in the center. So, uh, 35 guys on this side, 35 guys on this side, and the accused would stand in their midst. And they rapidly, illegally convene this court. It's the first of seven mock trials that Jesus will endure and be found innocent in all seven of them. They all come together. And Peter had followed at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. Ooh, that's close. It's just to the north of the chamber of hewn stone where the Sanhedrin would have been meeting. It's just on the northern wall where Peter is with his face to the fire. The, the description is very clear. His face to the fire, he's being warmed. Now, John will tell us why that's important. It's a charcoal fire. See, the smell of the nard is on Jesus, but the smell of the charcoal fire will remain on Peter for three more days until he encounters Jesus over a charcoal fire in Galilee. Peter followed him in a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And right there, trial's over. If you get two witnesses in Jewish law that, whose testimony contradicts one another, the case is dismissed and thrown out. But these guys are so heck-bent 
on destroying this man. They convene illegally before sunrise, can't do that, and they so hastily try to find people to give false witness that they don't even agree with one another. It should have been dismissed, but they press on and they persist. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple, which is not what Jesus said, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Had Jesus actually said that, it would have been grounds for capital punishment, not what Jesus said. He was talking about his own body. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They should have thrown it out then. And the high priest finally stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Are you going to give us anything that we can turn on you? Will you please not let us trap you? (laughs) But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This is not asking him if he's divine. This is not asking him if he's the Son of God. This is a Davidic title. Do you think that you are the Son of David? Do you think you're the one that's going to throw off the Romans? He misunderstands, and in the shock of shocks, Jesus answers the super question. We kind of don't expect him to do this. Oh, but he does. Are you the son of David, the conquering king that's going to throw off the Romans? Jesus says, oh, it's way bigger than that. And Jesus said, ego me, I am the name of God. Not just I'm, or it's I am that I am, ego me in Greek, I am, and you will see the Son of Man. He invokes the Daniel 7 title. The Daniel 7 title, Son of Man, is the judge of the cosmos. Jesus is saying, you guys think you're judging me. Let me be very clear. I am judging you. Pay close attention to what you are about to do. Because I am the Son of Man coming in the clouds, not atmospheric moisturization. That's not the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven is the Shekinah glory of God. And I come to judge. Pay close attention to what you are about to do. Seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. They put God on trial and they convicted him. And some began to spit on him. Oh, this escalates quickly. These are the Illuminati. These are the the high educated, learned blue bloods of Israel. And their wrath breaks forth like water, Proverbs says. And they begin to spit on him, the ultimate denigration. They punch him, they slap him, they blindfold him and tell him to prophesy as an Old Testament reference to see if he really is the Messiah, had they only known what they were doing. They begin to spin on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And then the guards receive him with blows. They take him away and they continue to wail on him. Verse 66, it's a familiar passage, don't miss it. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Oh, man. Enter the teenage girl. Never a good sign. I've been in youth ministry. The teenage girl comes and asks you a question. You're done. It's over. It's over. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also are with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. This is an official legal defense. I neither oblige nor understand the question. 
Peter's giving a legal answer because Jesus has just been on trial. It's all he can think to say and do. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began, she follows him. Teenage girls, man, they're tenacious. She follows him. Says to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. This is, this is not profanity. It's so much worse. He's saying, God is my witness. God is my judge. May God judge me ever so harshly if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, and immediately, Mark says, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. For he was a human holocaust. And here we have the middle of the Mark and Sandwiches. Jesus tells of the betrayal. And at the end, Peter betrays him. And right in the middle, we have Gethsemane, where Jesus will face this all alone. Now, you can hear this. How do you respond? I want to invite you to instead prepare to worship. What do we take away from this text as we prepare to worship? Three quick points. Number one goes like this. (laughs) Worship is not moderate. I don't know what you think about when you think about worship. Worship is not moderate. Our appreciation and adoration of Jesus is not an accessory. Except that the truth is it is. We have little corners of our lives, little windows of time where it feels good to aim that little bit at Jesus, but the rest of it, I'll take it from here. (laughs) With no recollection of the Holocaust that I am causing in my entire sphere of influence. Now, worship is not measured. It must not be moderate. Living that way is madness. It's a functional implosion and collision. I'm all about the king of kings, but I'll take it from here. That's absolute nonsense, and yet that's what we do. Now, our worship must not be moderate. We are dangerously unqualified to be the captain of our fate and the master of our soul. Why bother trying? It will never work out. You do your best, and the next thing you know, there's just some guy's ear on the ground. What happened there? This woman, Mary, she shows us what it looks like to direct our entire person towards Jesus and pour our entire being out on the only one that's worth it. It's not measured. It's not moderate. If Jesus is who we say that he is, then our hearts have to catch up with our mouths. (laughs) It's Passion Week. Passion does not mean an intense emotion. It means the extent you're willing to go to accomplish the goal. I love Jesus on Sundays until noon. No, if we're going to say that Jesus is who he says he is, then our hearts and lives and relationships have to catch up with our mouths. We must beg him to command us. You think of Jesus that way? I am your servant. Command me. I invite you to. 
We mustn't come to church because we feel like it. We come to church because the Son of God loves us and he gave himself for us. Now watch, watch. We come to church to corporately anoint him. <laughs> to declare as a people that he is prophet and priest and king and that what he accomplished on the cross was for us but it wasn't just for us, it was for you. And so when I come to church, I have the opportunity, the privilege, and the prerogative to say, there's an alabaster flask, and his name is Joe. May Joe be poured out on Jesus today. May Brandon be poured out wholly and fully on Jesus today. Not, hey, I can maybe just watch this online. Or maybe I'll just not today because, you know, it's sort of windy. But maybe, maybe I can think about church on Sunday afternoon and go, man, next Sunday, there's an alabaster flask named Scott. There's one named Dusty. There's one named Sue. What about when they pour out and anoint the Christ in worship and he receives it and he never breaks Eye contact. Worship is not moderate. We don't do it if it's convenient. We do it because we get to prepare to worship. Number two, newsflash, we are weak. You get nothing else this morning, get that. We are weak. Remember when I said that Jesus said whenever the gospel is proclaimed, she will be remembered. Her act of worship, her act of devotion and loyalty, it'll be remembered. Well, here's the, the other side of that great grand chapter 14 Mark sandwich. Has it ever occurred to you, what would have happened if Peter hadn't have blown it? You ever, you ever think, like, what if Peter would have just said, you know what, it's worth it, I'm in. I will say, I do know him. Do to me what you're gonna do to him. But worse, bring it. I am with him all the way. I said that I would be, and I am. What would have happened if Peter actually had identified and gone with Jesus all the way to scourging and crucifixion? Oh, he did 30 years later. But what would have happened if he'd have done it right then and there? You know what had happened? I'll tell you. There'd be two churches. And there would have been millions of people that would have dangerously, egregiously, erroneously worshipped Peter as some sort of substitute option. But no. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, we talk about this woman's pouring herself out. But you know what we also do? We also talk about Peter. Because I'm Peter. And you're Peter. We also talk about Peter. And the fact that Jesus says, Pete... I love you, dude. You're going to try hard. You're going to fail big. And I'm going to die for it. I'm going to become it. But I'm going to rise again. And maybe the greatest line in the whole of Mark 14, I'll see you in Galilee. Like if I'm Jesus and you make a bold claim like that and you compare yourself better than all the other disciples and then you fail miserably, about two and a half hours later, I'm saying deuces, bruh, because that's in Hebrew. Not Jesus. I'm going to rise and I'm going to meet you in Galilee. 
We are weak. Jesus loved him so much. Our eyes get heavy and weak because the darkness seems to explode. But that's okay. It is precisely because of our weakness that Jesus is and did what he did. So prepare to worship in your weakness. Third point goes like this. He is strong. Now that's very good news. We are weak, but he is strong. I don't just mean that he is mighty. Oh, he is. Although he's certainly mighty, I mean that he is so strong that he is willing to face the wrath of God for something that you and I did, to stand condemned for it, to become all of the sin, guilt, and shame that you and I are, and to undergo the horror that he didn't deserve, an unfair accusation. You can tolerate a lot of things, but you can't tolerate a false accusation. You will go berserker over that. Well, he's so strong. That means you recognize and realize that the strong one has been judged already. He's that strong. Why does this matter? Why do you care in your everyday going about life between the Sundays? He is so strong that he's been judged for everything out there. That means you will never encounter in anybody else, even your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, even in that group of people that don't vote like you do, you will never encounter in anybody anything for which the Son of God did not die. That it has been judged already. So you can be completely free from the burden of ever trying to judge anybody for anything because it is finished. Not only that, he's so strong that he was judged so that you don't ever have to judge yourself. He's that strong. It's what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 4. I am not innocent, but I have a clear conscience. I have a clear conscience, but I'm not innocent because the strong one was judged for me. He's that strong. That's the gospel. Can you imagine being able to live like that? Well, we can. And in fact, we must prepare to worship. What is this chapter telling us? Jesus is the judge who himself entered into judgment, who was judged. See, that's the only way this ever really gets down into us. Jesus did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Sin is substituting yourself to be in the place of God. You been there? I have. I call it Sunday afternoon. Sin is substituting yourself to be in the place of God. Ah, but salvation is God substituting himself for us in Christ. That's the gospel. Do you believe that? Will you receive that? This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. And the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. I'm going to invite you to pray with me this morning. Father, I thank you for this lengthy passage, and I pray that all those gathered on these floors in this building and anyone watching remotely will have heard a better sermon than the one preached and that your word would sound forth. And so, Father, by your spirit, I want to extend, to the extent that I can, an invitation. For anyone who does not know you, who is still trying to operate according to the terms of an old kingdom of strength and their own power and their own might and their own creativity and their own capability, that they would believe, that they would be persuaded that they are a holocaust at best, but that you have become the substitute in Christ 
to redeem us to yourself and to one another. Would you do for those individuals what you have done for the rest of us and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, that they would receive the gospel, that they would step out of death into life like Simon the leper, and that they would prepare to worship. Father, for the rest of us who have been believers for some time and as we enter into Holy Week, that you would move mightily and remind us that we must not worship in moderation, but pour out our whole lives and look at one another as alabaster flasks waiting to be poured out. And we would love one another and pray for one another and be a community of people who ever encourage one another and edify one another to prepare to worship. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. It is by your spirit and in his name that we pray. Amen.